Good morning, and welcome to Cottondale Baptist Church. Thank you for worshiping with us this uh, wonderful Easter morning. Uh, if you would have told me several months back, uh, Chad, you'd be preaching Easter service to an empty room, I always said, what in the world are you talking about? But here we are. But uh, Solomon, when he built the temple for God, he as he prayed at the dedication of the temple, he said, Lord... It, the heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. And so God is not bound by time. He's not bound by space. He's certainly not bound by this room. And wherever you are this morning, uh, in your home or in whatever way that you're watching this, you can join with us to worship the God of Solomon, the God of Abraham, the God of uh, Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So thank you for worshiping with us this morning as we remember that our Savior is indeed very much alive. And so I hope it's a blessing to you, and, um, and I look forward to sharing with you what the Lord has laid on my heart this Easter morning. Uh, before we get started, um, I'd like to pray for us. So as I pray, let me just invite you, wherever you are, uh, just bow your heads, close your eyes, and lend the weight of your heart behind my prayer as we pray together and ask the Lord for a blessing. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this moment, this hallowed moment that we have to gather together and worship you, to contemplate, Lord, the the unsearchable depths of what actually happened that fateful day 2,000 years ago when you robbed the grave. When your disciples came, your disciples came expecting to find a dead body and what they found was an empty tomb. And how the world, Lord Jesus, has never been the same. Help us not miss it, God. Help us not miss the most important thing that has ever happened in human History, Help us not go our whole lives, Lord, without appropriately, properly feeling the weight and the glory of this one single reality, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray you would help us to see its infinite implications, God, to our own hearts and our own lives this day. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Romans chapter 8. I, I do um, encourage you to grab one and, uh, and turn there with me, Romans chapter 8. And as you do, I want to share a passage of Scripture with you, one of my favorite passages concerning the idea of resurrection. It's found in John chapter 11, after... Jesus' good friend, and Jesus loved their whole family very much. Jesus' good friend Lazarus had died. And this is what happens when he returns after delaying uh, several days knowing that Lazarus would die. And then Jesus comes back, uh, back to the village. And this is what it says in John 11, verse 21. It says, Martha said to Jesus, Lord... If you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give it to you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. 
Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? You see, Martha began um, her, her, her uh, comments to Jesus in very accusatory language. If you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died, Jesus. In other words, she's asking the question that a lot of people are asking today. Where were you, Jesus? Where are you, Jesus? Where are you in the midst of this virus, Jesus? Where are you in the midst of all this? Where is Jesus in the midst of all this? Jesus responds to Martha's language, to her implicit questions, with a question of his own. He says, your brother will rise again. And then he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe? You see, Martha was in the very thralls of pain and sorrow and loss and agony, like many people today. And Jesus doesn't deny her grief or or try to belittle her pain in any way. But in the face of her pain and her sorrow, he proclaims to her truth. Your brother will rise again. And then, after that... He asks her a question of his own. You know, in times of sorrow and pain and suffering, in times like this that we don't always understand, oftentimes we, as weak, finite people, we have a lot of questions for Jesus. But perhaps the most important questions during times of difficulty are not the questions that we have for Jesus. It's the questions that Jesus has for us. He tells Martha, do you believe this? In other words, Martha, in the midst of your pain and sorrow, the most important thing that you need to know about yourself, the most important question you need to ask yourself in the midst of this season is this. Do you believe that I am who I say I am? Do you believe that I am the resurrection and the life? Do you believe that your brother will rise and live again? Do you believe that whoever believes in me shall never die? And that whoever lives, and be- whoever lives and believes in me shall never die? Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do you believe this? That's the question that Jesus is asking during this season. That's the question Jesus is asking This day that we celebrate the resurrection of the dead, do you believe this? I pray with all my heart that everyone watching would truly believe this and that if there's someone at this very moment who does not yet believe this, that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, I pray that by the end of the service, by God's grace and by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would indeed believe this. I want to talk about this morning, resurrection, the redemption of our bodies. Resurrection, the redemption of our bodies. I want to flesh out some more of these realities and these wrestlings of life from a passage 
our passage this morning in Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 18. Beginning in verse 18. I haven't been doing this, but uh, it seems appropriate to do it. Even though we're not gathered together uh, in, in body, we are gathered together in spirit. And if you're at home, why not go ahead and stand up like I typically ask my church to do when we're to get together in present? Why not go ahead and stand up and together we'll stand in honor of the reading of God's word. As we read from Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 18. Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it. With patience, the word of God, you may be seated. I want to explore this passage under three headings this morning. I want to examine present hardship, number one, present hardship, number two, patient waiting, and number three, promised hope. Present hardship, patient waiting, and promised hope. First, I want to look at this idea of present hardship. The Bible teaches that we live in a fallen world. This is especially, uh, we're especially aware of this in this season, in the midst of the thralls of this virus that it has put, uh, uh, that is, is afflicting the world. We live in a broken, fallen world. I know you feel it. So do I. And isn't it interesting, this always interests me, that even people who don't believe in God, in fact, even people who believe that everything that exists is really just nothing more than a cosmic accident. We exist for no reason, just blind time plus matter plus chance, and therefore everything is ultimately meaningless, no meaning, no real, mor- no ultimate morality, morality, no ultimate purpose. We're just here by accident. And yet even people who believe that that is the true reality of the world, even those people can't help but think, it should be better than this. It should be better than this. We just can't escape it. We all, without exception, feel this way. It's part of human nature. And I argue that the reason that everyone, even the people who don't accept Christianity, the reason why we all feel this way is because there is the lingering memory of Eden in our hearts and in our minds. We can still hear the echoes of Eden reverberating deep down in our hearts. We know, we can't escape it, we can't explain why, but we know that we were made for a better world. That we were made to live forever. That's why no one wants to die. And no matter how much we try to drown out that memory of Eden with pleasure 
and drug and relationship and success and money and security and comfort and whatever else we try to find meaning with in this world, deep down, it's still there. Death is coming. And we don't want to die. We know that this world should be better than it is. And we know this because we, in fact, were made for a better world. Paul says in verse 20 that the creation was subjected to futility. Futility. The word there has a sense of being void of what it ought to have or being less than what it ought to be. Paul clearly has in mind the fall, what we call the fall from the uh, book of Genesis chapter 3. If you go back to the very first chapters in Genesis, especially 1 and 2, what, you, what we see is that the world, in essence, was created for man. God created the heavens and the earth, and he ordered the earth in a, a particular way. And at the very end, he created man, and it says that when he created man, he said he, that he created man uh, in his image. Male and female, he created them. And he created them to have dominion over the earth and over the birds of the air and the fish over the sea. And the fish in the sea. And so, basically, earth then was created for man. The whole reason the earth was created was for earth to be a theater in which God's glory could be displayed in his divine image bearers. Whereas we ruled upon the earth, cultivating uh, life and culture and society and and creating and developing and and living righteously in the fear of our God as we as we ruled the earth as as his as bearers of his divine image the earth was the is the divine theater for that to take place and for God's glory to be displayed through it we were made to rule over the earth in fact Adam When he was made, he was given a garden to tend. He was a farmer. He was to tend it and to cultivate it for God's glory. And the implication there is that was supposed to spread over all the earth as we ruled God's earth for his kingdom and for his glory. And so what we see here is that the purpose of the earth is deeply connected with the the purpose of humanity. They're, 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 we and, we and the, the created order are closely intertwined. In fact, just couple this with the fact that man, we were actually made from the dust of the earth. And what we see that we're, we're deeply connected to the earth in a rather profound way. Which helps us make sense of this reality then, what the Bible teaches, that when humanity rebelled against God, the whole, the whole created order as well fell under the curse of our sin. It is, that, is, it is as if we're, we're so knit together with the created order, we ourselves being created beings, that when we rebelled against God, the whole created order, as it were, fell under the, the curse of that rebellion. In Genesis chapter three seventeen, after the fall, God comes to them and he says to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Cursed is the ground because of you. You're our sin. The sin of humanity has brought brokenness to the created order itself. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. 
By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This, what is this? What is, what is the reality that we shall return to dust? That's death. Paul later put it this way, the wages of sin is death. We were made from the earth, and now because of sin, we're going to go back to the earth. And the earth itself, the created order itself, is, in, is under the curse and under the weight and brokenness of sin. Paul puts it this way, uh, the creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth until now. It has been subjected to futility. So this, my friends, is the Christian explanation for the brokenness of the world. We groan, Paul says. He says, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the, the redemption of our bodies. We groan in the brokenness of this world. We recognize that this world is broken, that it's not as it should be, and the reason for that is sin. And we groan, and we rightly groan. We ought to groan over the brokenness of this world. We live in present hardship, so we as Christians, of all people, we should not become disillusioned by the brokenness of this world, but we, we should, of all people, know and understand the depth of the brokenness of the world because of the... <laughs> The uh, horrendous nature of sin. So what, practically speaking, does it mean for us to understand this concept of the present hardship that we face through living in a broken world? Well, number one, as I mentioned, we should not allow ourselves to become disillusioned by the hardships of life. The difficulties of life is not evidence that there is no God. See, some people, they see the difficulties and the hardships and the pain and sorrows of life and they conclude where there is no God. But if we understand our Bibles correctly, it is not evidence that there is no God. In fact, it's confirmation of the biblical teaching that we live in the fallen world. In fact, if we, if, we read our, if, if, if we read our Bibles, what we'll see is that the Bible itself tells us life is going to be hard. That we live in a fallen world. We Christians of all people should remember that in this life, we are not saved from suffering. We are saved Through suffering. Following Jesus doesn't come without a cross to bear. In the book of Acts, chapter 14, it says that when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they have believed. Through many tribulations, the Bible says, we must enter the kingdom of God. So number one there is that we of all people should not become disillusioned by the hardships of life. And number two, we should let the groaning over our present state of things, this present reality, point us to our need for salvation. We all long for a better world. And that longing is itself evidence that we are destined for one. That longing is evidence that God has placed in our hearts a desire that that he intends to satisfy. Right? If you're thirst, right? You ever been thirsty before? Thirst is what? 
it's evidence that there's such a thing as water. The longing in our hearts for a better world is evidence that there is one that we are craving, that it's real, that it's out there, that we were made for it, made to crave it, just as we were made to be sustained by water. This yearning, a longing for that which is right, good, and true has been placed into our hearts by God so that it may teach us to reach out for that longing, to reach out and find where that longing may fully and finally be satisfied, which is ultimately only in the person of Jesus Christ. In Acts 17, Paul says that God, he made man, made from one man, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He is actually not far from each one of us. You see what Paul is saying? God has determined the allotted periods and and boundaries of our dwelling place. You are sitting where you are sitting right now in the location that you are, in the time in history that you are, because God wanted you there. And if you're listening to this sermon right now, You are doing so because God wanted you at this time, in this place, at this moment to hear this sermon. And if you don't know Christ, I can tell you it's because he wants you to be saved. He wants you to see the the difficulties and the hardships of this life and not let it harden your heart, but let it cause you to to turn and to begin to seek and to reach out to find the, the, the true satisfaction of that longing, which is in Christ alone. We can, at this very moment, reach out to Christ. The Bible says, Paul said there, that he is actually not far from each one of us. That satisfaction that you're longing for, that the world is craving in the midst of the brokenness of this world, it's real. And it's not far from any of us. All we have to do is turn around. Turn around from sin, turn from self, turn from the world, turn our backs to sin, self, in the world, and the moment we turn around from ourselves, we'll realize that Christ was right behind us the whole time. He's not far from each of us. If we will turn in repentance from our sin and faith in him, that like Martha, we might believe that he is the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? That's the question. So, number one, we see our present hardship, our present hardship, that it points us, oh, that it would point us to our need of something greater than ourselves, and may we find it in Jesus Christ. So, number one, present hardship. Number two, patient waiting. Patient waiting. When we face the hardships of this present life, one one of two things will happen. We'll either turn to Christ or we'll turn away from him. When we face the hardships of life, we either get better or we get bitter. I knew a woman, an elderly woman one time whom, who I dearly loved. And she had a hard life, and I will grant her that. She really did have a hard life. But the, perhaps the greatest tragedy of her entire life was not the hardships and the past wrongs that she had faced, but the state, that, the, the manner in which she had responded to them. 
because even long after all the hardships and past wrongs of her life were over, she was still enslaved to them. As a very bitter and hard woman who could, could see zero sunshine for the clouds. And if we're not careful, if we look to the world and not to Christ, what we'll find is that that's all the world has to offer. The world has nothing to offer of eternal significance. If we look to the world, we'll be left in disillusionment and despair. Nothing can ultimately, lastingly satisfy the longing of our hearts except for Jesus Christ. St. Augustine prayed this prayer. He said, Our hearts are restless till they find their rest in Thee. But if we turn to Christ in our hardship, if we trust in Christ in the middle of this difficulty, something miraculous happens. We're, we are empowered and enabled to endure, but not just endure, to joyfully, to, to joyfully, hopefully endure hardship. We are given the one thing that the world has no capacity to give, and that is hope. And when you have hope, you can do unbelievable things. When you have hope, you can endure unbelievable suffering. When you have hope, you refuse to give up. When you have hope, you can remain faithful, no matter how much it costs you, because you know that this won't be the end. Because you know that ultimately there is more to this life than a few fleeting, difficult years and then eternal nothingness. But it, with Christ in hope, we know that we are all just one heartbeat away from eternity. Either everlasting glory or eternal terror. But in Christ, we have hope. That's why Paul there says in verse 23 that not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. It says that we as Christians have the first fruits of the Spirit, and since we have the first fruits of the Spirit, we we groan inwardly, but we wait eagerly. We wait eagerly, right? The more that we suffer in this life, the more expectantly we, should, we, we, we look to the next life. That's why difficulties like this and things like the coronavirus have a profound sobering effect because, they, because prosperity and comfort and security have a way of just dulling our senses to what is truly real and things like the coronavirus kind of shake us and wake us up and help us see, Chad, you're going to die. Life is fragile. You're mortal. You're not in control. That has always been the reality, but sometimes it takes a thing like a virus for us to actually start thinking about it and believing it. But when we actually start seeing life as it truly is, if we know Jesus Christ, what it does is it gives us that true and pure longing as we ought to have. The longing of knowing that this world isn't all there is, but there's a, there's a, there's a day that's dawning soon in which all the shadows will flee. And so we can wait eagerly, longing for the day when what we see now only by faith will be swallowed up by sight. We can wait eagerly, Paul says, because we have the first fruits of the Spirit. The Spirit is 
was prophesied about in the Old Testament. The Spirit is the agent of new birth. If you read the Bible, what you see is that the Spirit is the agent of God's working to restore things back to the way they were meant to be. The moment the Bible says that we turn from our sins and our self and our claim to lead our own lives and we surrender and bow the knee to King Jesus and trust in Him and Him alone, the Bible says at that moment we are filled with the Holy Spirit. The Bible says at that moment we have become a new creature, a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. At that moment, new spiritual life has taken root in our souls and already in this very moment and in this, and in this present age is already working in us new spiritual life, already making us now who we are destined to be one day. Every work of the Spirit in our life is a small taste of the future destiny that is awaiting us. Every time we, by faith and by hope in Jesus Christ, endure an unjust wrong and and don't give up. And don't get angry or bitter or hopeless. Every time we love someone that's hard to love at personal cost. Every time we do what's right, even in secret. Every time we flee that temptation. Every time we put that sin to death. Every time we deny ourselves to follow Christ, we are already getting that taste of heaven. That's at work in us. The Apostle Paul described the Spirit's work this way in Ephesians 1. He said, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. That's what Paul means by the first fruits of the Spirit. The Spirit is the agent of making things new. And when we believe in Christ, we receive the Spirit. And and the Spirit already begins to make us new, giving us an earnest longing for the day when He's not going to, uh, not where where He's going to fully complete what He's already started. Make us completely and fully new. And not just us, but make the whole world new. Into the way it was meant to be. The Holy Spirit, Paul says, is the down payment, the guarantee of our inheritance. It's Christ putting down uh, a down payment on our hearts, saying, here's the first fruits, and, and because I'm giving you this down payment, you know that when the rest of it comes, you know that I'm, <laughs> he's saying, you know that I'm good for the rest of it. The down payment in our hearts, the Holy Spirit, is the down payment in our hearts of the new creation that's waiting for us. And not only do we wait for this new creation, but Paul says that the creation itself, in verse 19, is the creation itself waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. You see, remember, I said that we, as created beings, we are deeply interconnected with the created order. And just as it was our sin that brought the curse upon all the created order, so it will be our salvation that will bring the undoing of the curse upon the whole created order. In other words, our salvation will be the the world's salvation too. Our redemption, our glorification, our renewal will be the renewal of the world as well. So Paul says that The created order itself, not just us, groans with waiting. 
for the new heavens and the new earth. The creation is waiting for that day when we will cast off our earthly garments in exchange for heavenly ones. And in that day also, the world itself will be purged in the fire of judgment only to rise from the ashes as a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness and no coronaviruses dwell. So for now, we wait. We wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. How are you doing in your waiting? How are you doing in your waiting? Are you groaning? It's okay to groan. It's okay to groan. But don't forget to wait eagerly. Because the groaning isn't going to last forever. The day is coming when we'll be changed. So number one, present hardship. Number two, present patient waiting. And number three, promised hope. Promised hope. Verse 18, Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. What is the glory that Paul is talking about that is to be revealed to us? What is this thing that is so great that if we will just fix our eyes on it, we will be able to endure anything because the greatest suffering of this life is not worth comparing to that, that glory that, will, that is one day going to be revealed to all those who hope in Christ. What is that glory? If you look through this passage that we've been examining, you'll see that he uses several different um, ideas to, to refer all to the same thing. In verse 18, as we said, it is the glory that is to be revealed to us. In verse 19, it is the revealing of the sons of God. In verse 21, it is being set free from our bondage to corruption. And it is, it is obtaining the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And then finally, in verse 23, it says it is the, our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So what is this thing, this glory that Paul is pointing to that is so great that the sufferings of this life are not worth comparing to? And he is saying it is this. It is our resurrection from the dead. The redemption of our bodies. Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. Jesus already has a glorified body. 2,000 years ago, as we celebrate this Easter day, he, he physically, bodily rose from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And because the grave could not contain Jesus, neither shall it be able to contain those who belong to him. That's the hope that belongs to the believer in Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 15 concerning what our bodies will be like on that day. He says, There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. We experience difficulty and hardship and loss and pain and suffering, but we await the resurrection from the dead and new glorified bodies that cannot experience any of those things anymore. There's an order to it, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 23. He says, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. And so this is another way of asking 
what Jesus asked Martha, do you believe this? Another way we could ask it is this, do you belong to Christ? Because if you belong to Christ, what is true of Christ, he guarantees he will make sure becomes true of you. The resurrection of the dead. In that day, Paul says, so great will be the glory that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with it. Indeed, I believe the Bible teaches we will shine brighter then because we suffer now. There has to be death before there can be resurrection. The acorn has to go into the ground before it can become an oak. The seed has to be buried before it blossoms from the earth. Jesus showed us this. Jesus showed us the way. As we celebrate what happened 2,000 years ago, this very day, the greatest day in human history, when sin was forgiven, death was defeated, and humanity was given what we didn't have before and what multitudes of people still don't have to this very day. Hope. Christ gave us hope. Paul concludes this passage by saying, For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We who follow Christ, Paul says, we hope in what we cannot see. That's true. What that doesn't mean is that our faith is some leap in the dark. In fact, I believe that Christianity makes vastly more sense out of reality and our experience than any other way of looking at the world. And I'd be glad to have a conversation with you about that if if, uh, if that doesn't sound convincing to you. But it's true. Nevertheless, we as Christians do believe we hope in what we cannot see. We, our faith, however, is not faith in faith. Sometimes, you know, coffee cups teach that kind of thing. Oh, you just got to believe as if faith in faith. No, we just don't. We don't, faith isn't, we don't believe in faith for the sake of faith. Our faith isn't in faith. Our faith is in a person. Our faith is in Jesus Christ, who proves his faithfulness by being the fulfillment of the scriptures, by loving his, his sheep unto death, by dying on the cross, by rising from the dead, by appearing to his followers who saw him with their own two eyes, and then wrote down their testimony and told others and shared their testimony of how they saw their master and Lord physically, bodily raised from the dead, and then who most of whom went to their bloody deaths on the basis of their testimony that their master was indeed alive, risen from the dead. And now by faith we read the Bible and we see the lives of these men and the teachings of Christ and we, and we trust him and we believe in him and we accept that testimony. And, we, and as we follow Christ, we see him at work in our hearts and in our lives, changing us and guiding our lives and working out circumstances for our greatest good and for his greatest glory so that, yes, we trust him. We trust him. As a, as a small child traces, trusts their loving, wise father, we trust our great savior. We look to him even when we don't always understand. We believe, we see with eyes of faith that this faith that we proclaim, this 2,000-year-old faith of Christianity isn't some myth or some feel-good bedtime story, but that our Lord and Master Jesus Christ 
a man sometimes referred to as Jesus of Nazareth, really did physically, bodily rise from the dead that faithful first, that fateful first Easter morning. The tomb really was empty. The disciples really did see him. And yes, and Thomas really did put his hands in his wounds and in his side. And Jesus looked Thomas in the eye with great love, and he said to them, You see and you believe, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet still believe. And now that same Jesus has ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty Almighty, and promises to all with all the authority of heaven and on earth that if we turn from our sins, believe in him, trust in him, follow him, he will forgive us of all of our sin and remove from us the curse of our sin, which is death. And in so doing, we too can have the sure and steadfast hope that we shall rise from the dead like he already has when he comes back. For us, when he comes back for those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is the 2,000 year old Christian hope. And one day, our Savior will come back, the sky will split open, and everyone who in their heart of hearts knows they belong to him. That moment will be one of unspeakable rapture and joy because these these fleshly, earthly bodies will melt away. The graves will burst open and we will become finally, fully, truly human like we were made to be. Resurrected, glorified like our Lord to live with Him forever in a world free from sin. This is the Christian hope and my question to you This morning is an all-important one. Do you have this hope? Do you believe this? This hope changes us. In 1 John chapter 3, the Apostle John says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Do you have this hope? As I close this morning, I, I don't always do this, but I feel like I should. I want to give, if there's someone who's watching this morning, and the Lord has stirred your heart to help you see that your sins have separated you from God, but that you can come to God and be forgiven of your sins through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I just want to give you a clear opportunity to respond, and you can respond like this. You can pray these words after me very simply in your heart, and God sees the condition of your heart. This prayer is not magical. It's not some kind of incantation. God can see the condition of your heart, and if you pray it in faith, I know that God will hear it. You can pray these words, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus, I know that my sin has separated me from you, and I know that I need your mercy. So I come, I come, O God, through Jesus Christ, asking that that through Jesus Christ and in his name, please forgive me. I believe that he died on the cross to pay the penalty for my sins. I believe that he rose from the dead to conquer the penalty for my sins. I believe that whoever believes in him and who are forgiven in him will not ultimately die, but will be raised from the dead on the last day. And I 
want to be in that number. So Lord, forgive me. Change me. Make me new. I surrender my life to you. Come lead me, guide me, change me, and make me into who you want me to be. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you ask Jesus to forgive you this morning in faith and have truly received Christ, the next and most important step for you is this, is to become part of a local church family where you can receive encouragement and strength and and follow Christ in the first step of obedience, which is believer's baptism, and become part of a family who will love you, help you, support you, and help you grow in your walk with Jesus Christ. You can... Uh, you can shoot me a message, a personal message on Facebook or message our, our Facebook page. Um, or you can go to our website and contact me via email, however you want to do it. You contact me and I want to connect with you and celebrate with you the resurrection life that's already at work in your heart. Celebrate how we'll both together meet Christ in the air one day when we're raised to new life in him.